It has contributed to the rise and fall of civilizations, from people who have spent their lives searching for it to today's modern conveniences. Every single one of us is a stakeholder in it. G'day, and welcome to Humans of Agriculture. I'm your host, Ollie Lalive, and welcome to episode six. Today I'm chatting with Sam and Steph Chathui of the Tasmanian Agriculture Company. Sam has been a strong advocate for the agriculture industry and the need for continual improvement. He's achieved this through various roles in agribusiness and startups. He's now turned his hand to production agriculture and with his partner Steph, with a background in journalism and communications, they're a formidable force. They're building a business that relies on the symbiotic relationship between nature, their animals and their management. This model of farming, known as Regen Ag, is gaining traction. So is it the latest trend? By listening, you'll find out how Taz Agco is building a style of farming and a brand that is bringing transparency. As a beef brand without a cow, it's an interesting business model and one to watch. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Yeah, so starting off, I suppose, just understanding what brought Taz Ag Company to life. Um, I'll try and be as concise as I can with that. But for me, there's there's three parts to it. Um, uh, the first part is is personally, so the opportunity to come home to Tasmania um, to to I suppose go back farming, which is where my passion is, and and get back into production after a number of years off farm in agribusiness and ag tech startups and whatnot. You know, we've got an amazing little farm here that you know lives off a very sustainable and reliable westerly weather system, so we don't have to put up with that uh, turbulent easterly weather system that the rest of Australia, seems well, a big part of Australia, struggles with. Um, you know, we've got, we live in a great spot. We've, you know, Steph and I are eating better than we've ever eaten. And we've got, you know, so I suppose culturally and, and the food scene down here is amazing. It's just great to be home. So the second part of it is I'll get Steph to kind of touch on, which is the opportunity for Tazagco, why Tazagco from a market um, point of view. Um, and the third part, I suppose, was more for me professionally. So I used to write for Fairfax a number of years ago and um, I became increasing, increasingly frustrated with how conservative Australian agriculture is and, and especially the leadership. Um, you know, the allocation of funds, um, you know, a bit of hypocrisy, I suppose, like any industry and knowing now what, I, what is a good way to do things and a bad way to do things. So the biggest opportunity that regenerative agriculture has um, and all of what we're doing is to actually put some data around it because the reality is, is if, if we want to start to significantly increase our output of, of in, in more sustainable production systems, we need capital. Yeah, so the last part is attracting capital. So, um, the, you know, the regenerative agriculture scene or, or, or any type of kind of system that's conducive to producing the same amount of food or more food in a, in a way that requires a lot less chemical um, and man-made inputs uh, and is far better for our environment. Um, isn't attracting capital right now. And it's not that capital is not interested, it's just that there's not enough data and business models around this space. So that was the other side of what, what I wanted to do professionally was to build a really robust, um, internationally kind of competitive, compelling commercial business case around a regenerative agriculture system. Um, and so, you know, how exciting is this? You know, let's do it. And, and then, of course, the opportunities to significantly grow from here. And for you, Steph, so you've come from the, the journalism background. So what is it around Taz Agco that you think really opens up an opportunity for the consumer engagement? Yeah, well, I suppose I'm probably a good case study for that consumer piece because, you know, having grown up in the city, I've worked around Australia in journalism, you know, I've worked in regional areas, but, you know, having spent most of my life 
in the city consumer space, um, I find it really exciting that I'm kind of be able to bring from a storytelling perspective, that consumer perspective. So I've not grown up, you know, in farming and I don't have preconceived ideas about food. I, I, you know, I, I think I can really tap into that consumer um, mind, mind space, I suppose. So for me, you know, to answer your question, I'll get there in a sec, but for me, the opportunity for Tazagco was my, my passion has always been storytelling. So, you know, I spent eight years in, in television and um, it, it's really empowering now to be able to be in a position to tell my own story and tell our story. So um, that's why I'm really excited about my role, which is really about bringing the brand to life and really trying to connect with consumers and really, you know, be transparent as, you know, we, we spoke about earlier and, um, you know, to really tell a unique story because I, I believe we have one. Um, and in terms of of what consumers want. I mean, the whole reason, you know, one of the big reasons Tazaco started is, you know, we were thinking, well, what, what's the next big thing in food? And at the time, and, and grass-fed is still, you know, very, very sexy and grass-fed beef, you know, it's not hard to find. And, um, you know, there's arguments for, um, you know, the fact that it's, you know, healthier perhaps in some ways and lots of things happening, but grass-fed's not new. So I guess when we sat down, we thought, you know, we want to do a grass-fed Wagyu product. But, you know, I sort of said to Sam, well, what's the next, what's, what's the next thing after grass fed? What's the next best thing? And regenerative agriculture, as Sam can talk to, is not new. Um, it's actually going back to the way things were done, you know, um, working with mother nature for many, many thousands of years. But in terms of what consumers are going to and are already starting to demand is, is food that is not just sustainable. It's actually what we call it Tazagco beyond sustainable. So um, there's a huge opp opportunity for a, a, a portion of the consumer market that, um, wants their food to not just be grass-fed or just farmed in a, you know, nice way, but actually farmed regeneratively. So that was the opportunity. And that's where all the pieces kind of fell together. It's let's do grass-fed wagyu, but let's actually farm it in a way that is, um, you know, actually reversing damage done to soil health and whatnot. So, um, yeah, it's a pretty exciting opportunity for us, I feel. Mm. Hi, I'm Pia, horticulture and sugar analyst at Rabobank, and I'm here to share our latest insights on Australia's vegetable market. Did you know in 2023, Australia produced over $5.8 billion worth of vegetables, though only 4.3% of this was exported. Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market. In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, and countries with low cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, Mapping World Vegetable Trade, or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more. No, it's really cool. I love following you guys on social media. But um, um, who is your, your consumer target? Is it someone like me who's young professional working in Melbourne? That Yeah, who are you guys targeting? Yeah, I would say you definitely fall in that target market. I mean, really our, um, our focus has always been, um, you know, Millennial and millennial sounds, I always thought millennial was like super young, but it's not that young anymore, but is really sort of like, you know, that, that 24 to 44, you know, rough bracket um, of, I guess, health conscious, environmentally conscious, um, food conscious consumers, and they don't have to tick all those boxes. It might be someone that is, that they do want to eat meat. They don't want to eat it every day. They want to eat it once a week. And if they're going to eat it, they want to eat it from a farm that's, you know, being farmed, you know, regeneratively as an example, or it might be someone in the city, you know, who goes to the gym, that they're really health conscious. They, they want grass fed. They think this is better for them, whatever. So I, you know, we're fulfilling the needs of, I guess, multiple consumers, but yes, to answer your question, there's a definitely a big opportunity in that, that young millennial um, market, especially millennials that are becoming parents themselves 
themselves. And, you know, we know from, from, you know, the data that, you know, females do the majority of the shopping in households, you know, whether that's going to the supermarket or the butcher or, you know, local greengrocer. Um, so there's a big opportunity in that female market. Um, females and mums in particular, they do do their research. They do want to know where things come from. Um, not everyone, but, you know, the consumer market we're after are those, those people that do care where their food comes from and not only care where it comes from, but care how it's farmed. Off the back of that, obviously, Tassie is a huge opportunity for us. You know, it's the Tasmanian agricultural company for a reason. You know, we're home. You know, this is Sam's home. It's my home now. And there's a huge domestic opportunity and local opportunity here to really um, be a local brand in Tassie. So not only the millennial market, but Tasmanians themselves, you know, we want to we want to grow into a brand that Tasmanians are proud of. And that's why we're being really open with our story. It's why we want people to connect with Sam and Steph, not just the Tasagco brand. So it's all kind of part of that piece. And I think that's what what's really cool from the perspective of you guys putting like just the regular updates and doing it from the yards or, or wherever you are driving the tractor or in the ute is that you actually start to feel like you know you guys. And yeah, I, th I think it's awesome from my point of view is I, I don't understand how you guys haven't got more of a following yet, but I think it's, it's one of those ones where it'll just take off. Um, well, after this podcast, it'll take off, I'm sure. Yeah, right. This is the... Oh, geez. I don't know about that, guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. hockey stick curve mate we're just at the bottom we're about to take off but uh no i think look i think you know jumping into some uh, boring stuff but i think from an insta point of view i think they say once you get to a thousand things start to kind of really you know i think even instagram help you through algorithms and stuff so it's always a bit of a grind getting to that first thousand we're pretty close there and steph does an amazing job and um but it's sometimes it's a bit of a job in itself like i do my own kind of work-based type professional uh, story on on LinkedIn through my weekly whips um, and Steph's obviously doing more of the, the visual based kind of farm uh, stuff on online through you know Insta and Facebook but you know it, it takes a lot of time and to be honest you know some days you just don't feel like sharing some some days you don't you, don't, you know you're having a crap day you don't really want to share what you're up to and, and try and be perky but anyway we're getting there we have talked about some of our ups and downs you know probably maybe not in recent weeks, but, you know, people scrolling through who've been saying, we've done a few videos on some of our challenges, like we encountered, I don't know, a troll, you would say, like an online troll that kind of was a bit nasty to us. And, you know, we kind of turned that into a video. We were chatting in the car, we put the GoPro up and we started talking through how we felt about that, what that meant, how are we going to handle negativity? As any brand knows, the bigger your following grows, the bigger your critics grow along with your, um, you know, your cheerleaders. So, um, yeah, like, so we, ha we have, you know, we've made a point to try and show the not so great times because it's not always sunset, you know, and beautiful cows and sunshine and rainbows. Um, and I think we'll increasingly start to do that as we get closer to going to market. We haven't even launched our product yet. Like our product's not out until roughly, you know, October, November. Um, so we've really been trying to build a brand with no product. And I think that's really important is to bring people on the journey. So they start to, to build that trust and to build that connection with you before you've even selling anything to them. So um, that's been a big part of our strategy too. And so you guys, you're building a, a brand without a product, but you're also growing beef without cows. How's that, the, the model there? How'd that kind of come to fruition and, and where'd that idea come from? So I suppose I, 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 ever since I was a little fella, I've always do things the hard way and, 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 and my own way. And, um, and I kind of, to be honest, grew pretty, um, I suppose, annoyed by the rhetoric that we that we hear around Australian agriculture from our generation, Ollie, that, oh, it's too hard to get a start on farm and, you know, you need millions of dollars and da 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 And, yeah, you're absolutely right. But, you know, I remember my old man saying, you know, God, he said, do you think it was easy when 
when I was your age to walk into a multi-million dollar asset as well. Like agriculture has always been a, a capital, you know, really intensive business model where you're asset rich and cash flow poor. And, and so it is difficult to get a start, but, but it's not impossible. And that was what I, one of the things I wanted to kind of prove. So to answer your question more specifically, after having watched the startups for three years and, and looking at, you know, successful startups abroad and, and the cliched examples of Air, Airbnb and Uber, the startups are very good at getting heavy things off their balance sheet, which means they don't have to raise as much money and therefore give away more equity, right? So, you know, Airbnb, biggest hotel company in the world or, bear, you know, accommodation business and don't own a bed and, and the same with Air, um, with, with Uber. Um, and so... I, I thought, well, how could you do this with, 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 you know, with agriculture where it is a capitally intensive asset rich game? How do you get those assets off your balance sheet? And how does Sam and Steph go back farming when I don't have a multi-million dollar asset being handed to me and with, with you know, stock as well? So, you know, look to the dairy industry and, and they, they don't want their calves. They've got female breeding units, but they don't want their calves. And it's like, well, I, I want calves, but I don't want cows. And so all of a sudden there's this kind of, symbiotic relationship and to be upfront there are some other people that operate in a model similar to this on the mainland but there was no one doing it in Tasmania um, so that's when we said well hang on there's a bit of a, a, an opportunity here to to put our own bulls and genetics into dairies uh, under contract buy all those calves back male and female from the dairies it solves a bobby calf issue for them which is you know a ticking time bomb from an animal welfare uh, issue for that industry so it lessens their bobby calf issue. Uh, it's a bit of a win-win. And, and then we end up with, you know, not having to carry, carry a female breeding unit for a whole 12 months just for her to give us one calf. Um, so that's kind of where that, that kind of came from. And then that's when we worked with Steph and said, well, if we're going to put animals, uh, you know, genetics into a dairy, what, what type of genetics would you put in there? And, you know, you think of all the beef breeds out there. And so that's when we came up with, well, grass-fed wagyu is the opportunity. And then we worked our way back from, well, if a consumer is going to want this, given our research, what's the best animal that we can invest in uh, to, to put out there on dairies. And that's kind of where we came up with our current model and system. <laughs> that's awesome. And, Thanks, mate. and so touching on the bobby calf issue that, that you raised there, are you guys worried or hesitant at all that by raising awareness that you're actually taking those bobby calves back and uh, giving them, I suppose, a useful lifespan um, for an end product as well? Are you worried that there's going to be uh, fallout from within within industry and those potential suppliers of yours? Um, I did think that at the start. Um, and then, to be honest, we don't actually talk about it much. So when anyone digs, you know, we, we absolutely are happy to share and, and it's touched on very briefly on our website, but it's not something that we use as a defining feature or kind of competitive advantage or, or, or brand value of ours. It's not something that we talk about openly. There's a lot of other great things that we do that we think is, you know, safer to talk about. And so, yeah, I originally worried about that, but the, the reality is, is that dairy industry has got to get on and do its own thing with Bobby Carves. And, and they are, um, you know, I suppose some of the dairy farmers have said to me, uh, and a lot of them are actually our age, um, Ollie, and they've kind of said, look, I don't know if you're the solution or you're part of the solution, but we've got to start in our own business getting used to rearing 75% to 100% of the calves as opposed to only 25%. And what is that like from an operational point of view on our farm with rearing and sheds and staffing and milk and, and stuff like that? So, so they've got their own challenges that they're dealing with, but it's not something that we kind of advertise. It's just, yeah. Well, and I think it's also, we don't see it as a, um, as a negative or a major issue. Like I think it's a real opportunity. It's a real positive because the dairy partners that we are working with, like, you know, they're all amazing and they, they're all trying to help solve 
that issue and we're helping them solve it, you know, on, on some scale. So I think um, rather than hiding from the problem or trying to bury it, it's actually addressing it and being like, well, you guys are a business that want to, you know, you know, obviously make some extra money because we buy the cars off them, but it's helping solve an animal welfare problem for them in some way. And for us, it, as Sam said, it's giving us numbers on the ground. So, um, yeah, we actually talked about, you know, when we, when we go more public with our brand, we launch our product. What do you talk about with our brand? Because, you know, to your point, Ollie, you talked about the need for brands to be more transparent. And we feel like we're super transparent, but it also becomes confusing when you start to talk about how we actually grow our business, the bobby calf issue, what is regenerative agriculture, how we farm, you know, grass-fed, the wagyu, our genetics, it's red wagyu, we don't use black wagyus, what's that? So there's actually so many facets to our business that makes it quite complex when you're trying to pitch it to someone or, you know, even from a consumer perspective. So it's just trying to find the parts of our business that are the most important um, to consumers and to industry. So the bobby calf thing, you know, we're more than happy to talk about it. It's just things start to get quite complex when you pull apart the entire business and everything that we're doing. And and just on that, sorry, just one other quick thing is for the dairy farmers, they're increasingly using sex semen. So as technology gets better, the quality of sex semen gets better um, from a fertility point of view and an accuracy point of view. So at the moment, I think, you know, if you can get a 40 or 50% success rate, like, you know, in calf rate from sex semen, it's a, not a bad rate. And, and they're about 90% female calves uh, and 10% bobbies. Um, as that gets better and more accurate um, and better quality, it actually increases the size of our ability to be uh, of use to that dairy because technically it means that we can have 75% of the calves that come out of that dairy into our system and they can just keep their 25% females for their replacements. So that's only going to increase and, and, and then we should end up hopefully with very, very few bobbies at all. Um, and of course, because we're paying them good money for their calves, it actually allows them to invest into other programs and, and into other parts of their business to you know, increase and, and decrease certain things. So. And so the scalability of the business, is it are you purely focused on Tassie for the foreseeable future or is it something that you guys see being able to be replicated right across Australia? And Do you mean the business model itself or from our target market and where our beef will be, you know, sent and where people will be able to buy it? Yeah, so I suppose from the actual business model, is it something that you potentially can franchise, for instance? Um, no, I think, look, I, I suppose the short to medium term is, you know, like Steph said, it's quite a complex business model and, and along with that comes a lot of uh, inefficiencies and opportunities for improvement. So our short to medium term plan will be, you know, really focused on getting it, you know, humming and, and going really well. And then and then I suppose given the way uh, we use, you know, we've got a number of Wagyu bulls and a heap of semen, we can scale very quickly. Like I can just turn, I can just put out another 20 or 30 bulls or another couple of thousand straws of semen and we can end up with, a sig like we can scale incredibly quickly as opposed to using breeding females where it takes you years to build. So we can actually scale our beef business incredibly quickly, but we've just got to keep it where we're going so we can get our meat piece right. And of course we're doing the supply chain and mm. you want to flood the market. But then, you know, in the longer term, uh, I suppose, no, we're not interested in the mainland or New Zealand. Uh, and we might go into other verticals, you know, it could be lamb or, or yeah, there might be lamb or, or um, salmon or cherries or raspberries or whatever it may be. But that is all adhering to a certain set of principles and beliefs that are the kind of international best practice on regenerative or, or sustainable mm. techniques. And we don't know what they are yet because we're focused on our beef. But we, we have this opportunity in mind in a couple of years to scale as we start going into other verticals. And it would then mean if a consumer wants to, you know, experience a Tazagco product, it's something that they know adheres to international best practice, regenerative principles for whatever produce it is. Yeah, and I think it is about quality, not quantity to begin with. Like, 
we, we are going to be, you know, relatively big for a, a new business. But, you know, from when Sam and I first sat down planning Tazagco, it was really big and like thousands and thousands. It was just, you know, this big beast that, you know, we're both hungry, like we're both hungry. You know, we hope to get there in some form one day, but we've really scaled back those, I guess, that big numbers driven type business because a number of mentors said to us, you know, it's very easy for new businesses and startups to just bite off more than they can chew. And you just get sort of really lost in more complexities than you needed and you haven't got in your fundamental business model, right? So we've taken away a few lessons from that. And, you know, while we're not going to be small, like, you know, probably more medium, we're not, we're not, we're making sure that we get things right. And the regenerative piece is something you can't rush and can't scale. Like that's really important to our business model and to our, you know, consumer market as well. So we want to get that right first and then, you know, scale as the coming years um, unfold. I've got a couple of questions going on from that, but around so world's best practice for regen ag, is that something that there are clear cut guidelines at the moment or are they evolving and do you guys see yourself having a, a real opportunity in developing them as well? Yeah, the latter part of your question, mate, it's, um, you know, the regen ag movement's quite interesting as, um, you know, if you, if you look at uh, the organics industry objectively, it's, it's not a failure, it's incredibly hot, you know, like it's hotly demanded, but it, they've kind of failed as an industry to really mobilise producers. And, and the whole entire organics industry was originally set up around what you can't do. And it's like, well, if you want to do it, it's really difficult when all you get told is what you can't do. Whereas what's exciting about the region ag space is once you start rubbing shoulders with some of the leaders, it's all about what you can do. And it's how you can improve this and how you can do that. And this is what we do here and sharing and growing together. So um, we've learned from the organics kind of space is that, that not to take that kind of negative can't do approach and turn it into a can do approach. And then again, when you listen to some of the international experts, they don't want it to be like organics where there's a certification body and it's kind of, you know, there's a government governed process and da, 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 da. But the reality is, is with any industry, and I saw it in ag tech, as you start getting all the cowboys come in and from a marketing point of view, they just start chucking regen ag over on their, on their packets and their products and their produce and, and what they're doing is not really any different to what a, a standard conventional farmer does, which then, you know, that's, that's unfair on the guys, uh, guys and, and, and ladies that are, going really hard on doing what they believe is the right thing. So, so no, right now there isn't an international standard set of rules that, that, that means that you are or you aren't regenerative. Um, there seems to be growing awareness around, you know, three or four majors that are required to kind of put you into that kind of sphere. Um, but again, it's quite loose and it's not governed. So it's something that, that it'll be interesting to see how it plays out over the next few years. And of course, yeah, we'd love to be involved uh, and we're looking at being involved with a coalition of the willing that kind of want to set something up uh, without creating another industry body for Australian agriculture. I think we've already got 90. Um, but that sets something up that provides uh, guidance for producers, but also integrity for consumers. Well, I've got a question on mentors, but I'm going to come back to that later, I think, because while you're talking about tech and region ag, and I suppose I'm wondering around some of the, the measuring pieces for it. Are you guys looking at like, it's, is it broader than just looking at carbon levels in the soil for Rick to be classed as region ag? And how are you guys going about, I suppose, how are you guys gathering the data and um, yeah. transferring that? Um, so it's kind of funny. It's kind of like a full circle actually. So I'm, I've set up um, a, a map uh, of the farm and I've identified it and I just did this myself and I've you know been watching and listening to what other people have done. I'm like, well, how can I, create um, a bit of a foolproof, independently auditable type system that, that, that you can have some objective measurements across farms. So 
uh, pump all that into. And over time, every quarter, we'll do that, do the same tests in the exact same GPS locations and hopefully start to see some improvements in, the, in those variety of tests. Um, from a carbon point of view, um, we uh, have baselined our farm, but we have baselined with a, with a system um, that is actually considered internationally best practice. It's been approved in Paris at the Paris Agreement. Which we haven't actually announced yet and we'll be doing, doing some um, you know, media in the coming months on that, but it is really exciting because it's really the start of that data journey. Yeah. So to your point, you know, Sam, Sam and I were in a bit of a workshop um, a few weeks ago and you know, this whole Regen Ag um, integrity system came up and we started this discussion with other people in the room that became very complex as to, you know, like Sam said, with the organics, it's a long list of what you can't do. And therefore, how can you across multiple, um, you know, um, food products, like how can you try and create some sort of system for Regen Ag? Everyone farms differently, everyone's soils different, la, la, la. And I, I, my suggestion is, and, and perhaps one day this will happen, but in my mind, um, the best way to make something that can be quite complex, quite simple is to say, well, if you're farming regeneratively, then you're sequestering more carbon than your entire farm and operation emits. That's it. That's the measurement because that means that you're improving soil health, not you know not doing the bare minimum. You're actually reversing damage done. You're sequestering more carbon and it's going back in the atmosphere. And that would be, again, this is just my opinion. That would be a very very simple way that many regenerative farmers um, through data could quite simply prove that they're regenerative just through um, you know showing that. That difference in measurement so that was yeah. just one idea on how to keep it simple so who knows well australia's already developed um the testing methodology for that for carbon sequestration for soil carbon levels um and there are lots of people out there that test carbon but there is one particular way of doing it which has been um endorsed by not only the federal government but but internationally it, 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 within the paris agreement um and so any any farm that's that's baselined in australia to that um, protocol is accepted internationally as as a true soil carbon project and um, so we've, we've been a part of that which is really really cool but to Steph's point and just to wrap up that um, the reality is is people say well that's a bit too simple you know what if you do this and it's like well what if you do that but it all comes back to building soil carbon because if you build your soil carbon you build your nutrient density of your soils you're building the water holding capacity of your soils you start overlaying that with some regenerative grazing principles and you actually start regenerating and utilizing a full kind of ecosystem introducing multiple species back into our, our pastures as opposed to just ryegrass and clover or whatever the few that you it is that you may have um, but you know as soon as you put on npk you start burning carbon you burn it off as soon as you start spraying out fungicides or or, or herbicides or um, things like that you start killing microbes which then dramatically reduces your soil's ability to sequester carbon so it's kind of one of those things it is actually that simple and so is it opening up a whole new means of income for you as well? So you're getting all the productivity gains. Is it um, an income market as well for you? Oh, a little bit, yeah. I mean, I think our, 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 our kind of estimations here on farmers with the first two years, I don't know, we might make 15 to 20 grand in soil carbon credits and then you know, we should be doing that close to that every year. So, you know, which is not to be sneezed at. It's, it pays for a few things, but it's, you know, it's not exactly sitting back on your laurels and, and letting that, you know, that tick yeah. in but it's it's more from a marketing point of view it's the ability for us to market a product to make those claims and for there to be you know internationally no doubt whatsoever that the tests and the the, the gains and, and and carbon sequestered on our farm cannot be disputed yeah and um i think this is one thing that really gets both of us a bit riled up and i'm going to mention it because it is back to you know it's not an income it's actually not just because it's a marketing thing but it's because we actually believe it's the right thing to do i think that's super important i think any regenerative farmer 
you know, at the guts of it, you know, they're doing it really well because they actually believe it's the right thing to do. But companies around the world, whether it's, you know, air, you know plane companies that offset their carbon emissions and, and pay for pay for pay to offset their emissions really i mean that's fine but as sam said and this is one of my favorite quotes that he's ever said is, is he said that's sort of like paying someone to do the 40-hour famine for you um it's very easy for companies and brands to to pay whether it's for a rainforest in you know uganda or whatever um to offset their emissions and and the thing about regen ag that's so exciting and particularly you know from a marketing perspective is it's doing it legitimately. It's actually physically repairing the soil that we are walking on every day on our farm that our cows and our cattle walk on. And I think that's really important because um, I get a bit frustrated um, when you when you read about brands that you know are cl claiming various carbon things and they're just doing it by you know offsetting emissions, which is fine. It's better than doing nothing. But I think it's really important that we start to build that transparency and and you know build into the story what regen ag actually is and the fact that it's actually putting you know money where your mouth is and actually physically doing something about it on your property so i think that's really important it's um getting rid of the smoke and mirrors appeal and putting the economics aside isn't it to yeah yeah i mean it's just it drives there's so much greenwashing already in australian agriculture you know there's some big cattle companies that go buy some carbon credits and and you know chuck some solar panels on their on the on the roofs tops on their station houses and and they call themselves carbon neutral i mean it's but it's essentially it's business as usual there's been no systemic or fundamental changes in their business model whatsoever that actually see them do better for the environment than, than what they take away from it or what they contribute to it um that's what annoys me and i suppose that when you said, why are we doing Tazagco? That was part of the opportunity to prove to industry. No, no, no. You know, and consumers are going to get, right. consumers are smart, Ollie, and, and they're going to get even more smarter. And I've even seen commentary on Facebook and Twitter now from people like, well, you know, paying for carbon offsets. That's just cheating. Like it's, you can't claim carbon neutral status when that's what you're doing, right? So consumers will start to work out, you know, the difference between true you know, action and, and systemic changes to your business model where you've got skin in the game when you're actively repairing or, or, or being carbon neutral as opposed to just offsetting and, and paying someone else to do it for you. So anyway, we're a bit passionate about that as you can see. So, <laughs> no, and that's, I love it because that's led me back. So you guys have lived and breathed it with the troll. You are putting not only your livelihood in the palms of it, but you're putting, I suppose, your professional and personal credibility on the line. How do you guys manage that and having your whole life, I suppose, open and transparent to potential criticism it's a good question because sam and i had a, a bit of a discussion when we started you know social media as an example sam was a bit more hesitant than i was to put our you know family out there and to put our thoughts out there and um we're not even you know we haven't even gotten started yet to be honest but we've already you know opened up quite a lot and, and what we've discussed today with the podcast and um it is hard but i we don't feel like we can do this without being um 100% genuine and open and back to you know your initial point talking about that transparency that's that's what's that transparency is opportunity and I think that um, as Sam said consumers are getting smarter and um, we need to be as an industry we need to be better storytellers and storytelling in terms of you know telling the truth and speaking your truth uh, you know as I said before as brands grow critics grow with them with you and and that's fine I think that's something where prepared for i mean sam's copped his fair share of flack from being outspoken on several issues when he was writing you know for industry um for fairfax and, and me personally i mean i've chased 
my fair share of dodgy businessmen murderers down the street when I worked you know for a current affair I've been abused and we've both copped a fair share we've got pretty thick skin but it's what you sign up for you know we're being open and and the people that we that want to connect with us the the people that are interested in our brand and our story fantastic our supporters you know that's what we're there for and they'll always be haters and that's fine I mean I know it sounds cliche but that's just what comes with it and bring it on haters gonna hate uh, (laughs) as they say but um yeah, look, it's an interesting one, mate. And um, uh, I, I suppose, you know, I mean, I think it was Winston Churchill said, you know, if someone doesn't like you, good. It means that you've stu- stood up for something. And mm. um, I think for me, that's what being a leader is all about. And, um, you know, rewinding back to seven or eight years and Katie McRobert, who now works for Australian Farm Institute, who you may know, she was my editor yeah. at Fairfax. And I used to come out with some pretty outlandish stuff. And so, you know, and this kind of leads on to your point uh, or the conversation you want to chat about in relation to mentors. But, um, you know, I mean, my, one of my first topical articles, I remember that I can quote the start of it. It was, um, you know, did you hear about the takeaway shop uh, on the corner, you know, that was going broke because you know, they couldn't run their business and they weren't very efficient and, and uh, you know, they were going broke. So they cried out to the Minister for Small Business for tax cuts and funding and subsidies and things like that. No, you didn't hear about them because they just went broke like any other business. So why do we tolerate farmers that are equally at poor at running their own business? Um, so I, I went really hard on the fact that we see all these crying, whinging farmers that want subsidies. And sometimes, you know, yes, we have big, long droughts, but when we have a short drought that it cleans people out and all of a sudden poor farmers are going broke, but there's people around the country go broke all the time that, are, that, that don't manage risk and that aren't sophisticated in the way that they operate their business and that don't strive for efficiency. So no one cares. But when a farmer goes broke, for some reason, it's some kind of national emergency. And so I suppose I, you know, spoke out about that and that was where my flack started and, and, and I, you know, God, I received some flack from industry leaders, all kinds of people for a number of years, every time I spoke out about flack and range from the fact that churches are dying in rural and regional Australia and, you know, there's this high level of homophobia in rural and regional areas, which is ridiculous and, and, you know, some of our best talent who may or may not be gay end up moving to the city where they feel kind of more accepted. And so I spoke out about all this stuff and, and I got a very, very thick skin. But to my last point is you actually end up attracting great people when you do that. So, yeah, all the haters and the naysayers, you know, throw a muck at you on online and social media and, you know, under anonymous names and stuff. You actually end up uh, building this kind of amazing network of people who, in, in my instance, some of them are at the top of our industry. Um, who patted me on the back, you know, privately, <laughs> I might add, uh, you know, either in a LinkedIn message or at an event and they, they say, I really believe in what you're doing and I think it's great what you spoke out about and no one's had the guts to say that for years and because I wasn't working for anyone, I had a bit of a licence to talk openly about whatever I wanted and that ended up, I suppose, securing myself um, some amazing mentors and people in the industry that I could work with um, and when you start talking out about on that kind of agroeconomic efficiency collaborative modern type management system you attract those types of thinkers around you and they're the ones that 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 you know create change and that's kind of where i started to find my way into that part of the industry and so who are some of the people that you've had in your corner um so i've been at stratix um so stratix was an ag tech accelerator the first one uh, in australia that we set up with a venture capital fund and uh still is the only ag tech uh, startup accelerator with a VC fund and um, so we set that up and I suppose after I've been there for two two and a half years I was watching all these startups follow their dreams and do amazing things and you know just personally I was you know I can't remember how old I was it must have been 32 
two or three or four or something, I don't know. Um, and I was starting to get to a point where, from, you know, Steph and I wanted to settle down a bit and I'd kind of had enough of the city and wanted to get back to production. So, yeah, it was a it was kind of a culmination of different things. Um, and, yeah, look, I won't go into detail on names, but, you know, some of my mentors are, you know, the head, you know chairs and CEOs in, in our industry, um, you know, the red meat industry, uh, pork industry, other industries. Um, cotton um and then i've got some amazing guys that i met through some stuff that i did in new zealand and they've now moved out of industry and, and i've increasingly tried to find people outside of agriculture because in agriculture we can be great navel gazers we'll sit around agreeing with each other and flicking mud at each other and the reality is is if you know when you look at this the the, the size of agriculture compared to other industries in Australia, you know, yes, we're important, but we're not actually as big as what we think we are. And, and the level of complexity and professionalism and, and cohesion and collaboration that you find in other sectors is just amazing. And, and so I've got a few mentors now that I've worked really hard on outside of ag, you know, some of them are in banking and other sectors to learn from them and their careers, um, which provides a completely different view and, and I suppose approach to the way that I execute mm. things within my own business. And what about for you, Steph? You've come from a different background in journalism. Have have you had people follow you across to really help you with getting things started? Uh, no, to be honest, um, I haven't really felt. I mean, look, in a nutshell, where I've, the world I've come from, commercial television is a pretty cutthroat industry, um, pretty dog eat dog type of world, and that's where I um you know, gain an incredible amount of experience, confidence um, and resilience um, through my years in TV. Um, very different for a TV journalist from the city to be now living on a farm in Tasmania, you know, running a beef company with a husband. So, you know, I will say that, you know, Sam and I are both pretty, um, pretty big on self-growth and self-improvement. And I worked really hard with a life coach, um, right, actually right before I had my son, who's now 15 months old. And um, I worked with her on, you know, foreseeing what life would be like on the land on the farm just just focusing on Tazak or not have anything else for me because obviously you know agriculture is not you know my sweet spot although it's starting to obviously become becoming it but um yeah but mentoring wise to be honest like it's a pretty joint effort like a lot of Sam's mentors we're actually starting to talk to now as we get closer to launching our product so there's been like phone conversations we've got another hookup this week with someone who's helping us with our you know go to market strategy so it's sort of like the one, the one team, one team, one dream at the moment. Can I just throw one other quick thing in there, Ollie? Is I can be very critical of the industry, but I have to say, and one thing that Steph's noticed too coming into it is, you know, Australian agriculture is incredible in the, the, the amount of passion that everyone's got. And I remember being a part of a, an online analysis years ago for a, a quite a large PR company that operates in the space. And passion was, I think, the second most used word in people's bios across Australian agriculture next to farmer. <laughs> so, um, and I love was number four or something. So, you know, one thing that Steph's noticed is just the passion and support that, that, that the industry does give. And you would have found that too, since you've entered into, the, entered into the industry and having obviously spent a lot of time on your farm in Vic and, and all that stuff. And so, you know, one thing that I have a lot of people that I now mentor and, or even it's just like an ad hoc chat, chit chat every now and then and help out because the industry has been incredibly good to me and supporting me is it's thrown me a lot of crap. Um, but it's only the idiots that throw me a lot of crap, really. But the, the great people have been around me to help me and support me, and I try and give back as much of that as possible. And, you know, I get contacted a lot by younger people trying to get their head around this or get a job here or do this. And I always 
try and do what I can because I was looked after and helped out and, and I've had some amazing people in the industry take me under their wing and I wouldn't be here today if I wasn't for the passion and the support that the industry provides itself. I mean, just lastly, I mean, how many, how many young fellas are out there doing a, a podcast of, you know, people of banking or people of the manufacturing industry? I mean, <laughs> I'd be highly surprised if they do, you know, and, and it's because to your point and to your passion project is there is a lot of passion and some great stories and, and the people are so dynamic and, and so I just wanted to put that out there because I can be very critical, but it is an incredibly awesome industry. As Sam touches on there, we're in a very fortunate industry that is full of people who love what they do and are constantly seeking for better ways to do things. The Tasmanian Agriculture Company is incredibly exciting. You can follow them on Instagram at Tasagco. As always, thanks for taking the time to listen. Next week, we're heading over to California to chat with Veronica Phil of Grounded Foods. She and her partner are trailblazing the way for allergen-free cheeses that are taking the US market by storm. She's an incredible story. Join us next Wednesday. And as always, you can follow us on Instagram at Humans of Agriculture. Thanks for listening and look forward to chatting next week.